Well, I'll be a Scottish uncle. They're dumping the tea into the harbor, and there'd be no British soldiers around to stop them. Max couldn't see Clary anywhere, so he just sat there, watching the harbor fill with tea. If the colonies wanted a revolution, they sure have brewed up one now. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. And just as a quick reminder, Playful World Ministries and the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is listener-supported. And that means we count on gifts to this ministry to help us keep these podcasts coming each week. So your gift, great or small, is vital to this ministry. And to give, you simply click on the Giving Fuel link that you'll find in our show notes. And then consider a single or even a monthly gift. Either way, we are incredibly grateful. Thank you. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 58 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, which, as you may have picked up on, includes the famous Boston Tea Party. And as you will see, it had nothing to do with teacups and saucers. I say, nor were there any little dollies or plush animals seated around the table. That's very true, Nigel. In fact, it weren't much of a party at all. I mean, there weren't any... Ah, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, first, here are your hosts, Nigel, Max, and where's Liz? I'm afraid, old chap, she's called in tardy. Aye, and she's late. What now? Well, she went back to this salon to get her furdue redone. Right, yeah, last week she had that spiked-up, punky-looking thing going on. Yikes. Uh, so anyway, I'll allow a little tardiness if she returns looking like, well, Liz. No more makeover, right? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> funny thing, yes and no. Uh, she did get some work done. Do I dare even ask? Bonsoir, mes amis. Ah, Kitty. What have you done? Do you like? I say, Liz, what on earth happened to your paws? You do not approve. Ah, uh, well, I, I certainly didn't say that. No need, Mussy. I'll handle it. Liz, what in the name of Pete happened to your feet? Were you walking through powdered sugar then? Oh, don't be silly. I heard this week's chapter is called Brewing Trouble with a Cat's Paw. Aye, so you brewed your own trouble with your own cat's paw then, eh? I simply went back to my fur dresser to have her get rid of my uh, spiky look from last week. Aye, the Egyptian porcupine look. Uh, we, oui, uh, uh, but she did give me a discount, so I decided, why not? So she frosted your paws? Bien sûr. Aye, I'd be a wee bit frosted too if somebody did that to me paws. Uh, no, old chap, I believe she did that on purpose. On purpose? Indeed. Uh, she even paid for it. With a discount, 25% off. Hi, I agree. It looks about 25% off. Max, I happen to like it. The white paws are a nice accent to the rest of my darker fur. <laughs> I thought she already had enough accent. Uh, I'm sorry, lass, but I'm not feeling it here. Well, my pet, as the shock wears off, I'm now beginning to see a fashionable side to your highlights. Uh, right, Max? <sighs> I'm trying, Mousie, and I'm sorry, lass, but to me, you look like a wee tiny Clydesdale horsey. Oh, Max! I say, seriously, old girl, uh, why the blonde boots, as it were? I don't know. Uh, frankly, I am... <sighs> I am a bit bored. 
You're bored? Well, not bored, but I just needed to do something exciting and just uh, think outside the box. I think I might know the problem here. Uh, Mrs. Announcer Lad has a theory that when a lady is not happy with her life and needs a change, she will often uh, change her hairstyle, or in Liz's case, uh, little white cat's paws. Well, I'm sorry, Les, about the horsey comments, uh, but what do you think the problem is? Oh, Max, simply put, I miss Al. Uh, I say, announcer chap, uh, this might be an appropriate time to focus on a different type of cat's paw, what? Yep, I couldn't agree more. And maybe you could help cheer up Liz. Indeed. Chapter 58. Brewing Trouble with the Cat's Paw. London, May 10th, 1773. I knew it! I knew this would happen! Nigel roared, at least as much as a mouse can roar, pulling on his whiskers as he paced back and forth in front of a bench in Hyde Park. I knew sending those Hutchinson letters to Boston would lead to trouble. Al sat on top of the bench next to Clarie, who was dressed as an old woman sitting there feeding the pigeons. He was drooling as she calmly tossed pieces of stale bread to the ground while pigeons fluttered all around them. We knew it, too. That's exactly why Benjamin Franklin needed to send them, Clarie answered calmly, tossing another handful of bread. Max and I delivered the packet to Samuel Adams. Nigel's eyes widened behind his spectacles as he stood in the middle of the flapping pigeons. What? Has your mind become completely unhinged? Why on earth would you do such a thing? This will only lead to trouble for Dr. Franklin and the colony of Massachusetts. Steady, Mosey, suggested Al before jumping down among the pigeons. He batted at pieces of bread and scrambled, as did the birds. Samuel Adams opened the packet and shared the letters immediately with Thomas Cushing, Clarie began to explain. He honored Dr. Franklin's request that the letters be shared only with a few people and not published. But when they shared the letters with the Massachusetts Committee of Correspondence, the alarm immediately rippled through those men, including John Adams and John Hancock. They feel that the people should be told the truth of the content of Hutchinson's letters, so Cushing wrote back to Franklin, asking if they could share the letters more widely. By the time they receive Ben's second letter, the uproar led by Sam Adams will be uncontainable. Leaks of the existence of the letters are already out to the press. It's only a matter of time before everything will be printed in the Boston Gazette for the world to read. Then Hutchinson, along with most of London, will be a tempest in a teapot. Nigel and Al stood side by side with mouths open in shock. Nigel threw up his paws, speechless over the turn of events in Boston. Al happily caught a piece of bread. And, Nigel finally said, what is the good that will come of this? The good that will come of it is this, Clarie began to answer, leaning forward on the bench, throwing her last few breadcrumbs on the ground. Al and the pigeons chased after them. While the colonies are acting less like Englishmen and more like Americans in every clash with Great Britain, Benjamin Franklin is not. He will play a vital role in securing American independence, but he cannot do so without being pushed like a baby eagle out of its nest. 
The discomfort of this issue with the Hutchinson letters is going to get worse for Dr. Franklin, but chin up, Nigel. In the end, it will be for the highest good of all. It will also play into other events coming to Boston. Nigel clasped his paws behind his back and tightened his mouth gravely as he considered the scenario for a moment. He shook his head, unsure of things. Clary got right in Nigel's face and smiled. This is just the second phase of your mission with Dr. Franklin and the key he holds to the future. You helped him make the key with the Stormy Kite experiment. Now the storm of these Hutchinson letters will insert that key into the door. Everything will make sense in time. Nigel lifted his chin, preened his whiskers, and adjusted his spectacles. Right then. I shall endeavor to see Dr. Franklin through this storm with electrifying success. That's the spirit, Clarie cheered, tickling Nigel under the chin. You'll need to be strong for Dr. Franklin, because he will soon be steeped in greater trouble than he realizes. Steeped as in tea? Nigel asked. Just then Al came running up to them. I just gathered some intelligence. Am I supposed to do something, Clarillas? One of them pigeons just told me the news they overheard on Parliament's windowsill. What news? Nigel asked in alarm. Some of those lordy lads said something about needing a cat's paw for the colonies, Al reported. Cat's paw is a figure of speech from a fable, Nigel offered. It means that someone is used unknowingly by another to accomplish the other's own purposes. Whatever could this mean? Well, that Lordy North just made Parliament pass some tea act, Al further offered. Does that help? Nigel put a paw to his mouth. Tea act? Oh, dear. The tea is going to be the cat's paw to tax the colonies. I heard rumblings about this from Dr. Franklin's discussion with friends, but I was unsure how it would play out. There are eighteen million pounds of unsold tea sitting in London's warehouses this very minute. They have been discussing how they can get rid of it and save the East India Company from bankruptcy. They have now found a way by some scheme of sending the tea to the colonies with this tea act. But I still don't understand how tea can be a cat's paw, Al wondered, scratching his head. He poked out his iron claw and wore a goofy grin. But I could use this to stir some milk into tea. We'll explain things a little better for you, Al, offered Clarie. Since Parliament repealed the Townsend duties, except for the tax on tea, the colonies have refused to buy tea from England. They've either smuggled it in from other countries or made do with homemade sassafras tea. So... British tea has piled up in the warehouses, as Nigel said. To get rid of it, Parliament is going to allow the East India Company to sell tea directly to new dealers in the colonies and cut out the colonial merchants doing business in London. These new tea dealers will be like those stamp distributors they assigned to collect the stamp tax. The tea will be shipped to them in the port cities of Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston. They'll reduce the tax on tea from 12 pennies per pound to three, 
which will make it cheaper than smuggled tea. Ergo, the East India Company tea will become the cat's paw to make the colonies pay the tea tax, Nigel added. But it's all under the guise of returning to the happy days of having a steaming good hot cup of British tea. England will tempt the colonies with cheap tea, thereby making them admit that Parliament indeed has the right to tax them. Nigel's eyes widened, and he pulled on his whiskers. By Jove, they'll set up a monopoly in the tea market while they are at it. If this conspiracy works with tea, England could try it with other imports. Why, those schemers are steeped in mischief. Sounds like those lordy lads be brewing trouble, Al noted, holding up his paw. So, you wouldn't be needing me cat's paw to make the tea then, Clarie? No, Al, not to make tea, Clarie answered with a smile. Good, because I don't like tea, Al replied. Just keep your paws on King George's desk to gather intelligence of any news about the colonies and Benjamin Franklin to share with Nigel. Clarie rose to her feet. I need to get back to Max. Between the Hutchinson letters and the Tea Act, trouble will soon reach its boiling point in Boston. Royal Palace, London, July 15, 1773 Bring out my tea on the veranda, King George said hoarsely, rubbing his throat. I need some fresh air. Uh, honey or milk in your tea, sire? the royal servant asked. Make it honey. My voice is strained, King George answered, glaring at Lord North. He proceeded to walk out of the room, with the Prime Minister trailing along sheepishly. Aye, no wonder it's strained, Al muttered under his breath, finally removing his paws from his ears after George's temper tantrum. He shook his head. No, let's see what all that yelling were about. But first, a snack. After the servant prepared the tea, he left the room carrying a silver tray. Al jumped up on the serving table and stepped in a glob of honey the servant had spilled. He snatched a scone and proceeded to jump down to the floor where King George had tossed some papers, sticking to the rug with each step. He tried to shake the honey off his paw while he scanned the pages of the Boston Gazette. Looks like them letters got printed, just like Clary predicted. And here's something from Lordy Dunmore, mentioned Al, scanning Dunmore's letter about the Virginia Assembly and their resolves. He spotted Patrick Henry's name, along with Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, and the others who had come up with the committees of correspondence. Al ate the crumbly scone and then proceeded to mindlessly lick the remaining honey from his paw. Uh-oh, looks like they be in as much hot water as them Boston lads. He moved a few pieces of paper around and grew quickly worried as he read a letter from the Lords of Trade about the Virginians. I got to till mousy, Al exclaimed, his mouth covered in honey and crumbs. He shook his paw, but the paper was stuck to it. As he fought with the paper, he proceeded to get more pieces stuck on all four paws and noisily ran out of the room. I guess I'll be shooing Mousy instead. As these proceedings of the House of Burgesses of Virginia appear to us to be of an extraordinary nature, and we think that inviting the other colonies to a communication and correspondence upon such matters 
as are stated in these proceedings, is a measure of the most dangerous tendency and effect, we humbly submit to your majesty to take such measures thereon as your majesty, with the advice of your privy council, shall think most proper and expedient. No wonder King George was upset. Those committees of correspondence look like they are organizing for revolution, Nigel worried, reading the nervous letter from the Lords of Trade to the king. The little mouse then scanned the Boston Gazette. And Parliament must be about to explode. The Massachusetts Assembly is calling for the removal of Hutchinson and Oliver. In London, everyone is wondering who leaked the Hutchinson letters, but interestingly enough, no one has yet mentioned Benjamin Franklin. Do you think they suspect me, Mosey? I be the sticky thief, Al announced, grinning as he licked his honeyed paws, with four cat's paws to gather intelligence. <laughs> Indeed, you have taken far more than the biscuit, my good fellow, Nigel quipped with a jolly chuckle. I say, with all this trouble brewing with letters and tea in the colonies, no telling what will happen when that British tea makes it to American ports, especially Boston. And what will become of Benjamin Franklin, I wonder? If the lordy lads are out to make the tea their cat's paw for taxing the colonies, then they best remember that cats like milk more than tea anyway, Al offered. Maybe Ben Franklin will stop drinking tea and start drinking milk. Hmm, milk. Benjamin Franklin was actually born on Milk Street in Boston, right across from the Old South Meeting House. But that's neither here nor there, Nigel decided with a wave of his paw to get back on topic. The colonies are shifting their talks from Parliament's right to tax to Parliament's right to govern. It would appear the colonies are finally weaning themselves off of milk. Mother country's milk, that is. Boston, December 16th, 1773, 5 p.m. So what happens at midnight? Max wanted to know, and why are you putting that stuff on your face, lass? Midnight marks the twenty-day deadline for the tea to be unloaded and taxes paid for the first of three tea ships that arrived in Boston, the Dartmouth, Clarie explained, smearing black coal dust on her face. She was in the form of a young man. Otherwise, the customs officials can seize all the cargo on the ship, the people have been meeting by the thousands for almost three weeks, demanding that Governor Hutchinson send the tea ships back to London without unloading them. So tonight, Sam Adams has called the citizens to gather at Old South Meeting House to hear the governor's final word on the matter. If Hutchinson doesn't allow Captain Roch and his unloaded ships to leave Boston Harbor, the people are going to do something drastic. She slipped on a fringed shirt, styled her black hair up in a quasi-mohawk, sloppily stuck feathers in her hair, and stood with her hands out. How do I look? Like a really badly dressed Indian. Are you heading to a costume party or something? Max asked, looking her up and down with his head cocked to the side. Perfect. I'm supposed to look like a really badly dressed Indian, Clarie explained, sticking a hatchet in her belt. And yes, it is a costume party of sorts, 
a costume surprise party. And what am I supposed to go as, a kitty? Max grumbled. Don't tell me I have to put cinnamon on me fur to look like Al. Clary giggled. <laughs> no, Max. Al has already contributed to the party with his cat's paw. I'll take it from here. You can go to the party just as you are. In fact, you don't have to do anything but show up and observe the festivities. She mussed the fur on his head. Get to the Old South Meeting House and wait for Sam Adams to give the signal. When you hear the commotion outside, get out of there and run to Griffin's Wharf. Max gave her the most perplexed look and then shook his head. And just what will they be serving at this party, lass? Why, the perfect drink to toast the start of a revolution, Clarie answered with a wink before turning to disappear into the night. Tea! This has to be one of her strangest missions yet. She's dressed as an Indian, going to a tea party at night in the middle of Boston, Max muttered as he started to trot down the cobblestone street toward the Old South meeting house. Suddenly he realized what she had just said. Revolution! Milk Street, Old South Meeting House, Boston, December 16th, 1773, 6 p.m. Here he comes, shouted John Hancock, parting the crowd so Captain Roch could enter the church. He proceeded to escort the man to the front of the overflowing sanctuary. More than 5,000 people had gathered, packed into the church before spilling out onto Milk Street. Max easily scooted under the legs of the people to slip inside. He poked his head out to see Samuel Adams standing at the front of the church, banging on the lectern. A debate had been raging for an hour over what to do about the tea sitting on three ships in Boston Harbor. They had threatened the newly appointed East India tea agents with tar and feathering, just as they had the stamp distributors. While not everyone approved of such treatment, the people did agree on one thing. They were not going to pay the tax. Order! Order! Let Captain Roch through! Sam Adams shouted. The wealthy American captain walked to the front of the church and turned to face the crowd. I've just returned from a meeting with Governor Hutchinson at his house in Milton. He has denied my request for a pass to leave Boston and plans to unload the Dartmouth in the morning. A cry from the crowd quickly rose to a deafening pitch as Captain Roch held up his hands in a futile gesture. He tried to shout above the noise, but finally walked down the middle aisle to exit the church. The people were on their feet, shaking their fists in anger at Governor Hutchinson's decision. First, Hutchinson's letters called for England to reduce our liberties. Now the governor's forcing us to pay a tax on tea. Hutchinson must go! Sam Adams banged on the lectern and called the assembly to order. Suddenly, a hush fell over the crowd, and the Patriot looked around the room, making eye contact with John Hancock, Josiah Quincy, and other prominent men from the Sons of Liberty. This meeting can do nothing more to save the country. He locked eyes with a man in the back of the church, who immediately slipped out the door. Within minutes, the people heard the whooping war cries of Indians, followed by the roar of people outside the church. That must be the signal, Max thought, waiting for Sam Adams to move, but the Patriot leader stayed where he was. 
other prominent Sons of Liberty members took their seats. They weren't going anywhere. Max furrowed his brow and ran underfoot of the people who were exiting the back of the church. Now let's see what that little Indian lass does at this party. A sea of people with torches marched down the packed streets of Boston to Griffin's Wharf, where the Dartmouth, the Beaver, and the Eleanor were moored. More than one hundred men in Indian dress and others with blackened faces split into three groups and boarded the ships. Max stood at the edge of the wharf and watched in stunned disbelief as the faux Indians took their hatchets and broke open 340 chests of tea while the crowds yelled and cheered. But they took great care not to harm any of the crew members or touch any of the rest of the cargo. It was an organized, efficient group of poorly dressed Indians tossing tea and only tea. Well, I'll be a Scottish uncle. They're dumping the tea into the harbor, and there'd be no British soldiers around to stop them. Max couldn't see Clary anywhere, so he just sat there, watching the harbor fill with tea. If the colonies wanted a revolution, they sure have brewed up one now. London, January 19th, 1774. What? What? Eighteen million cups of tea are floating in Boston Harbor? King George screamed, spitting out his mouthful of tea, spraying Lord North in the face. Lord North took out a silk handkerchief and dabbed his face, trembling as he stood in front of the angry king. I I'm afraid so, your majesty. The Bostonians protested the Tea Act by dumping 340 chests of tea worth more than 9,000 pounds sterling into the harbor. But thankfully, there was no other damage done to the ship's or cargo. In fact, the criminals even swept the ship decks clean and made sure everything was back in its proper place before they left. King George clenched his fist and set his jaw. You dare to tell me that we can be thankful that they were tidy vandals? His face turned red and he threw his cup against the wall, splattering tea and sending shards of fine china flying across the room. Who were they? I want them all arrested and brought here for trial. Lord North dabbed the handkerchief to his sweaty upper lip and cleared his throat uncomfortably. <clears throat> we don't know exactly who they were, Your Majesty. Uh, they were dressed as Indians, so no one recognized them. Indians? King George roared. What about those hot-headed sons of liberty, Sam Adams and Paul Revere and John Hancock? You know they were behind this. Evidently, they were seen by witnesses at Old South Meeting House and elsewhere at the time, so we cannot arrest them, Lord North explained. Well, someone needs to stand trial for what happened, the king shouted. Agreed, and we may have just the person. Those ungrateful Bostonians dressed as Indians not only to disguise themselves, they chose a symbol of something completely native to America to send a clear message. They see themselves distinctly as Americans, not Englishmen, Lord North said, picking up a copy of the London Chronicle. Why not allow one Englishman here in London to give an account for the Americans he has chosen to represent? 
he waved the paper in the air. King George rolled his eyes impatiently at the Prime Minister. Get on with it! Who do you mean? Benjamin Franklin finally admitted he sent the Hutchinson letters to Boston. William Waitley accused John Temple of stealing the letters and challenged him to a duel, uh, but was wounded. In order to prevent a second duel, Franklin stepped up and published his full confession in the London Chronicle on Christmas Day, Lord North explained, handing the paper over. King George snatched the paper out of Lord North's hand and read Franklin's entry. I alone am the person who obtained and transmitted to Boston the letters in question. The irate monarch turned to scowl at Lord North. But the man did not apologize for doing so. The Massachusetts Assembly has sent a petition to have Hutchinson removed, which I'm actually inclined to agree with after this tea business in Boston. What are you suggesting? Uh, Parliament has called Dr. Franklin to stand before the Privy Council to answer for his actions with the Hutchinson letters, actions that he claims he took to help matters, Lord North replied. Since Benjamin Franklin is the agent representing Massachusetts here in London, let him give an account for the letters and receive the council's fury for the actions of the Bostonians. King George watched Al pawing at a tray of cookies. We'll let Franklin be the cat's paw to take the heat for all of Boston's trouble. Then I'll appoint a strong military commander to take over as governor of Massachusetts. General Gage is due back to England any day, Lord North offered with a smile. Bring General Gage to me as soon as he arrives, King George replied. If Massachusetts won't yield to the pen of her old governor, we'll make her yield to the sword of her new one. London, January 28th, 1774 Boston, what have you done? It was wrong to destroy private property, Benjamin Franklin said as he pulled his fingers through his long silvery hair. He shook his head, yawned, and tossed the latest correspondence about Boston onto his desk. Now to give an account for your act of violent injustice and for my reasons for sending those letters to you. Tomorrow we'll both be in the cockpit. As Franklin went to climb into bed, Al and Nigel came out from behind the curtains. It don't sound like he's ready to become an American yet, Mosey. He's pretty mad at Boston for dumping all that cat's poor tea. Indeed, his love for our beloved homeland of England has him grasping for ways to set things right betwixt the mother country and her naughty colonies. He has always been proud to be an Englishman, Nigel lamented. But Clarice said that somehow these events will make Dr. Franklin have a change of heart. Everything shall come to a head tomorrow, and I predict that Benjamin is in for a brutal day. Why is he going to be in a cockpit? Al asked. I thought he were going to meet with all the king's men. The cockpit is the famed room of the king's privy council, so called because cockfights were held there during King Henry VIII's time. Nigel explained in a whisper. Such a dastardly business. I wish I knew how to encourage Dr. Franklin as he stands in the cockpit tomorrow. 
Is Ben going to have to fight like a mad rooster with all the lordy lads? Al asked, worried. They be the powerfulest British lions the king's got, you know. They've got the big cat's paw claws. No actual fighting, but the king's newest lion will try to verbally tear Benjamin Franklin to shreds. Ben will have to stand in front of Lord North and the Privy Council, while Solicitor General Alexander Wedderburn throws everything he has at him, Nigel predicted, furrowing his brow. Ben will be just like Daniel, thrown into the lion's den. Al put his paw over his chest. Do you need me to go with you to shut the mouths of those lions like I did for Daniel? I seem to recall it was an angel who shut the mouths of the lions, Nigel replied with a slight grin to the orange cat. Oh, aye, uh, that's right, Al sheepishly replied with a goofy smile. Sometimes I should just keep me own mouth shut. No, that I know I can do. He put both of his fluffy paws over his mouth. Nigel crossed his arms and tapped a finger on his mouth. Keep your mouth shut like a lamb. Suddenly his face brightened. Brilliant, old boy. I know how I can encourage Dr. Franklin as he enters the lion's den. Happy to give you an answer with all me questions, Mousy. Al quipped as he removed his paws from his mouth. He stretched out on the floor while Nigel ran over to Ben's desk to scribble a few words on a piece of paper. Now, what will he wear to the cockpit tomorrow? Nigel asked as he jumped to the floor and scurried into Ben's bedroom. He saw Ben's plain suit made of blue Manchester velvet hanging there, pressed and ready for his important day. Perfect. Whitehall, The Cockpit, London, January 29th, 1774. Benjamin Franklin spoke in hushed tones with his two lawyers, while thirty-six English lords eagerly entered the prestigious chamber. They quickly filled all the seats at a long table in the center of the room. A roaring fire in the fireplace warmed the room at one end against the cold coming from the windows that looked out on St. James Palace, the king's residence. Nigel was well hidden up on the windowsill before the humans arrived, and Al stayed behind in the palace rather than enter this British lion's den. Check your pocket, old boy, Nigel muttered to himself. He kept his gaze on Benjamin Franklin, who looked cool yet felt the heat already filling the room. They were waiting on Lord North to arrive so they could get started. After a moment, Benjamin Franklin put his hand into his pocket to lift his handkerchief and felt the piece of paper Nigel had placed there. He unfolded the paper and read while Nigel grinned with anticipation. Benjamin wrinkled his brow and turned the paper over as if to see where it had come from. The paper was filled with quotations he himself had penned and published long before in Poor Richard's Almanac. The things which hurt, instruct. A slip of the foot you may soon recover, but a slip of the tongue you may never get over. Think of three things, whence you came, where you are going, and to whom you must account. Benjamin clenched his jaw as he then read the verse Nigel had penned from Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Nigel nodded hopefully as Benjamin put the note back in his pocket and patted it 
as if to tell himself to remember the words he had read. Suddenly Lord North entered the room, yet couldn't find a chair, as they were all taken by the other lords. He stood beside the chair of the seated council president and nodded for the hearing to begin. After Franklin's two lawyers presented the petition by the Massachusetts Assembly that Governor Hutchinson be removed, Solicitor General Wedderburn moved in for the attack. Governor Thomas Hutchinson has only acted and spoken as a loyal minion of the king. If he has lost the confidence of the so-called people, then I submit it is Franklin's doing. Furthermore, Franklin parades as a doctor and a scientist, but he is a thief. I hope, my lords, you will mark and brand that man for the honor of this country, of Europe, of mankind. The cockpit rocked with laughter and the lords of the Privy Council studied Franklin with mocking, haughty eyes. Nigel's heart sank to hear such vitriol hurled at the brilliant man. But Nigel lifted his chin with pride as he saw Benjamin Franklin standing there as solid as a statue, unmoved and not showing a shred of emotion nor offering a single word of objection. Hutchinson has been the victim of Franklin's unscrupulous schemes to incite rebellion, and I submit that Franklin schemed in this manner primarily in order to have himself made governor, Wedderburn continued. For a solid hour, his Scottish brogue filled the chamber with scathing personal attacks on Benjamin Franklin. Wedderburn not only shouted, but pounded the council table, bringing out all the British fury to bear against the Bostonians for the letters and the destroyed tea. These British lions look like the Romans, attending the games in the Colosseum. They are actually enjoying these proceedings as entertainment, Nigel muttered in disgust as the lords frequently burst out in loud applauses and howls of laughter. This is madness. Letters might certainly be conveyed without any electrical shock, Wedderburn snidely remarked, making fun of Dr. Franklin's fame for his electrical experiments. They have, it is true, given a shock to their friends, but our correspondent knows of no conductor that will convey a shock to themselves. Against the transmitter of certain letters to America, the whole fire seemed to have been extracted from his frame. Of all the nerve, Nigel squeaked. He could not contain himself any longer and shook his fists in anger while he ranted up on the window sill. I'll have you know, you pompous little Wedderburn, that those electrical experiments are the key to the future for Benjamin Franklin and the colonies you are railing against. The little mouse then turned to look down at Benjamin Franklin, who was doing exactly as Nigel had hoped. He didn't utter a single word in response. Nigel cleared his throat, preened his whiskers, and tried to regain his own composure. Steady, old boy. Finally, Wedderburn stopped his rant and called Franklin as a witness, but Franklin's lawyers replied that he did not choose to be examined. Eventually, the hearing concluded with the Privy Council denying the petition to remove Governor Hutchinson, expressed with as much scorn as had been heaped on Benjamin Franklin. Then he was summarily dismissed from the cockpit. 
Brilliant Dr. Franklin, I have no doubt that you will someday shut the mouths of these lions. Nigel cheered as he applauded Ben's astounding strength, courage, and self-control. Little did King George, Lord North, Wedderburn, or the Privy Council know, but they had unwittingly been used as the cat's paw to insert the key of American independence into the lock. When Benjamin Franklin set foot in the cockpit, he was an Englishman. When he walked out the door, he was an American. Uh, I never knew how much old Ben Franklin wanted to keep on being British. Indeed. But after that, it would have been so apropos for him to just tell those lordies to <laughs> go fly a kite. What? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there, laddie. <laughs> right, Liz? <laughs> Weren't that clever? We. <laughs> uh, oui. <sighs> hey, there'll be no cheering her up then. I have an idea, old boy. Uh, Liz, my pet, uh, could you head over to Jenny's corner and conduct that interview today? Uh, Max and I have something we need to take care of. Oh, we, oui, of course. Hi, uh, that's a good lass. <laughs> okay, Mossy, what's the plan? Uh, hold on there, Max. Uh, hello, are you there? Uh, Max, I've got Al on the phone. Ah, me old buddy Al! Max, lower your voice. Ah, me old buddy Al. Could that be you, Max? Ah, uh, top of the morning, lads. Could you be putting me darling Liz on the phone? Uh, I say, Al, not just yet. Uh, she's about to do Jenny's corner. Uh, we thought we'd have you surprise her. Uh, you see, she's a bit melancholy. Give me that, Mousy. Uh, don't worry, Al. She's not a collie. She just is sad and misses you, lad. I sure and I miss her right back. In fact, uh, she did something a bit drastic, one might say. She went a wee bit daft, lad and bleached her paws out white. A black kitty with furry white paws? I'll bet she looks like a wee tiny Clydesdale horsey. Indeed, it appears as though the poor girl is wearing little white boots. <laughs> Aye, she's still me beauty, even wearing wee booties. Uh, well, the truth is, I don't think she really fancies these fuzzy boots of hers. Then I know what to do. I'll just get her some more boots. Uh, don't think you heard me right there, Al. Uh, oh, no, no, no. On the contrary, Max, I believe Al is on the right track. Uh, Al, you, uh, you take care of that, and we'll call you back in just a few, huh? Yeah, I say, ta-ta. Later, Moosey. Now then, let's head over to Liz and Jenny. Hi, uh, Liz? Miss Jenny? You run? Uh, merci, Max. Uh, well, Miss Jenny, what on earth is Jenny's corner about today? Well, it's all about the tea and all of this uproar over some flakes that you put in hot water and drink hot tea. What could be the big deal, right? Well, I think Nigel was brilliant in his explanation in this chapter. Nigel, you did a fantastic job explaining what the deal was with the tea. Well, much obliged, Miss Jenny. Uh, I did have a, uh, a good writer. <laughs> uh, well, then, uh, do go on. A lot of what happened with the American Revolution was more principle than anything. And no taxation without representation was the rallying cry of the patriots. Why they were opposing all these measures for Great Britain's parliament to tax them without their consent. So they opposed, they pushed back, they stopped the import of tea, 
and Parliament removed all these different taxes that they had imposed on the colonies except for the tax on tea. And then here comes this idea to sneaky manipulate and trick the colonies into admitting that Parliament has the right to tax them with this shipment of tea. I think it's a great lesson to show that when you have tyrants who want to impose their will and their wishes on a people, they will sneak things in, manipulate the circumstances, the dialogue. And this is a lesson for us today, for any era of American history, for we the people are the ones that govern this land, right? But it's our responsibility to be informed, to understand exactly what every proposed bill, legislation, measure, executive order, whatever it is, at the local level, at your school board level, at the state level, federal, to be well informed, pay attention to everything that governments at all levels are seeking to pass. Because one of the most angering things to me in this day and age, watching what our Congress does, they will pass bills and they'll sneak all this other stuff in there that has nothing to do with the bill, but it's a way to sneak in other stuff because they got to do their negotiation. Be very savvy, be very well aware, because the only way that we, the people, can maintain proper order of how we are governed is to be an intelligent we the people. So I have to applaud our founding fathers. They were paying close attention to exactly what was happening. They saw this coming cheap tea that they were going to be tempted with that was going to be cheaper than smuggling it, right? They saw it had this tax attached to it, and they weren't going to have it. And so they dumped it in the harbor. And, you know, Boston wasn't the only place that had a tea party. It happened all the way up and down the colonies, which was really great. <laughs> but let this be a lesson. Take a cup of tea and Google your local government or measures that might be on the table. Read. See what's going on out there. Pay attention. And if it's something that goes against what you feel is right, well, speak up. Contact whoever your governing representative is. Make your voice be heard if you oppose it. Do it in a proper civil way as we the people are called to do. And then, of course, we go to the voting booth and vote how we believe things should proceed. So it's not all the responsibility of those who are in positions of governance over us. The greater responsibility is to we the people to stay informed and to watch how things are run in our government. So when you drink the tea, be very careful. Know what you're sipping. <laughs> well, merci, Miss Jenny. Once again, I have learned so much, and I even feel a little better. Uh, but I do feel a little foolish about my little white paws. Uh, don't worry, lass. Mousy and me might have found an answer to your being sad. Indeed, we've found a way to chase away your melancholy. Where is this other doggy you keep talking about? Uh, never mind, Max. Uh, hello? I say, are you there? Hi, Mousy. Put me love on the phone. I say, uh, it's for you, Liz. 
Hello? Who is this? Ah, top of the morning to you, me lovely. Oh, mon cher Al, it is so good to hear your voice. Aye, lass, I heard you've been sad, and I can't be having that. Oh, you are so sweet, Al. I even heard you be wearing some new boots. Oh, I am so embarrassed. I was foolish and bleached my petite paws. Aye, sounds like you be looking like a wee tiny... Do not say Clydesdale. Oh, Al, I thought I could cheer myself up when all I needed was to hear your voice, mon cher. Well, that and wearing your new boots. Um, excusez-moi, are you mocking me? No, lass, never in a million years, me love. No, I mean, I done ordered you some boots, some real boots. Oh, my, I, I hope he hasn't embarrassed you further, my dear. I really don't think he'd be making fun of you, lass. What, have you never heard of puss in boots? Good one, Liz, and it comes with all me love, lass. Oh, très bien, mon cher. Merci, Albert. Uh, this is great. And, uh, hey, good job, Al. And uh, I hope you ordered two pair, because, well, you know, with four paws, you're going to need, you know, two pairs. <laughs> oh, you think so, lad? Well, I say, nothing gets past you, old boy. That was something only a human would say, monsieur. Aye, deft announcer, lad. <laughs> I say, well done. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.